0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to
1: um, welcome all of you to the UCSF uh, Mini Medical School, the topic being HIV, past um, present and future. Um, my name is Diane Havler, and I am professor of uh, medicine at UCSF, and I run the HIV-AIDS program at San Francisco General Hospital. Um, I wanted to start out um, with a couple of thank yous. First of all, I want to thank all of you for signing up for this um, course. I'd like to thank UCSF for allowing us to feature HIV in the mini medical school. I'd like to thank our uh, technical folks, Kyle and John, who are at the back of the room. And if I'm waving like this, it's because they're giving me signals. And I'd also like to start out by giving a big round of applause to the physician who has organized this program, who's going to be our first speaker. this evening, Dr. Monica Gandhi. So a big round of applause for Dr. Gandhi. So we're a little biased in in the HIV-AIDS field, but AIDS is like no really other story in modern medicine. Um, AIDS, HIV is a story of despair. It's a story of discovery. It's a story of fear. It's a story of courage. It's a story of medical triumph. And a little bit sadly for me to say right now, it's also a story right now of complacency. And I'm really delighted to see all of you here because HIV-AIDS still is a global public health emergency. And there's 34 million people living with this disease and over 2 million new infections every year. And somehow it's fallen a little bit off the public radar screen. But there's so much work to be done. We here in San Francisco are very fortunate. Are very fortunate to have the cutting edge leaders from all around the world, who are you going to hear about um, in this course? So this evening we have a two part program. The in the first part of our program we are going to um, hear a lecture on. Um, Monica Gandhi is going to tell us about the origin of HIV and the entry into human populations. This is something that people always ask: How did HIV start? Where did it come from? And to be honest, there's lots of myths about that. But our MythBuster, uh, Monica Gandhi, is going to set the record straight this evening. So one of the goals um, that we have in our mini medical school course is that after you leave this evening, you feel like you have a firm understanding of really the origin of HIV. So um, our first speaker, as I said, is Dr. Monica, Monica Gandhi. Um, Dr. Gandhi is, um, hails uh, from Utah. She went to the University of Utah, and then she went to Harvard Medical School. Um, somewhere in between, she got a degree in British literature from Cambridge, which we always find very interesting about Monica. And fortunately, she came over to the West Coast, where she specialized in infectious disease, and then she uh, has been a faculty in the HIV/AIDS division. Interestingly, her brother also works in infectious disease and HIV in the other institution, Harvard. Um, but we have Monica here and. And uh, it's, it's really a delight. She is truly one of our premier educators in our program, and you'll see why uh, when you hear her lecture this evening. So, Monica.
2: Thank you so much for that introduction, and thank you all so much for being here. I look forward to spending the next six weeks with you. Um, so I want to talk about... Um, where HIV could have entered human populations and when. And um, we think we have a good idea of this, but um, but I think this often generates a lot of questions, so I look forward to those at the end. Um, so, you know, the history of HIV is that one of the first reports of this ever described from Africa was published in kind of a premier medical journal that I'll be talking about further um, in this talk called The Lancet. And at that point... Um, I want to read you a quote, which was that it all started as a rumor, then we found out we were, we were dealing with a disease, then we realized that it was an epidemic, and now we have accepted it as a tragedy. And that was the chief epidemiologist in Kampala, Uganda, speaking in 1992. And the description of the disease at the time, uh, because people were so wasted from it, was called slim disease. The first reports in this country, and we're going to have a lot more on this history later in the course, but the first reports um of this epidemic that was called uh AIDS uh were in the what's called the MMWR one of our um journals um around surveillance in this country and these were both published in June and then one follow up in July and these are well known to us um we uh, commemorated uh a couple of years ago the 30 year anniversary of these two reports and one described an outbreak of pneumocystis pneumonia among uh gay men in LA and then the second described um, in other cities around the country, um, Kaposi sarcoma, another infection associated with advanced AIDS. Um, and these were the first reports in this country, and thus the first um, clinical reports um, of, of this cluster. So I want to take a step back and say, okay, how do infectious diseases enter human populations? When we talk about HIV, how does this happen with all pathogens? So I'm going to use the word pathogen, um, and microbe, so microbe being a tiny little organism—a virus, a bacteria, a fungus, a parasite—that comes into human populations, and I'm going to use that word microbe and pathogen um, sort of interchangeably. And most, mostly in the world, actually, because uh, organisms have to live, microbes are sitting happily in the organism um, and and living very well within that organism. So, for instance, we have um, a number of different organisms that are incorporated even into our very fabric of our DNA, are all over our body, are are lining our gut, and most microbes live in harmony with their hosts. And, in fact, there's um, well-known examples of commensal relationships. This is an example of a crab in a coral, and they live very happily together, and the crab eats the mucus that's secreted off the coral and all the detritus that comes into the coral, and then the crab protects the coral from predators. So this is an example of a commensal relationship. But what happens is that when coexisting microbes in your body can evolve and can become more virulent, or can start causing disease in the human body, or a new pathogen from the environment can come into and enter the human host. And these are the two ways that uh, emerging diseases occur, that a new disease is observed in human populations. And... It's actually human, I'll put activities in quotes, um, but human sort of interference with the environment that can lead to the emergence of new diseases in humans. So, for instance, global warming is a good example, that as the earth warms up, um, microbes that previously could only exist in one environment can now exist in another environment, and then they're exposed to new hosts and can go crazy with those new hosts. We'll be talking about this second one, which is interaction with animals, um, either hunting or eating or keeping animals as pets. This process by which microbes or pathogens go from a non-human to a human host is called zoonoses. And HIV, we think, is a zoonotic uh, illness. There's also changes in agricultural patterns. So as you farm new crops, that attracts new pests that can infect a farming community. Um, As we encroach on animal habitats, animals are crowded more densely together, and animals that shouldn't be so close together are very close together, and they can mix uh, microbes, and new microbes can emerge. Um, And also, if we go into habitats that we've never been together, we are exposed to new uh, microbes. As urbanization occurs, of course, um, humans are crowded into small spaces, and that's um, delightful for uh, contagious diseases. And then modern transport, of course, that jet travel makes it so that organisms can go in a day from one place on the earth to the other, other, even when someone feels quite well. Um, Or ships can, of course, carry unintended passengers in the forms of microbes. And then, of course, there's war and famine and all the other human activities that can contribute to disease. So let's talk about HIV then specifically, once we have a larger framework of how diseases enter populations. HIV itself is a um, type of virus called a lentivirus. And that is a subgroup of viruses called retroviruses. So I'll explain what retro and what lenta is. Retro means that um, these viruses use RNA as their genetic material. And eventually that RNA, we have DNA as our genetic material, um, but that RNA eventually has to convert to DNA once this virus enters the human host to cause more mischief. Lentavirus, that lenta part means slow. And that means, and this is very clever of this virus, but that means that there's a long interval between the initial infection and the time that someone gets sick. And that long interval is the time in which a person can spread the disease even though they feel quite well. And so the lentiviruses um, are a subclass of retroviruses. And were there ever anything in, in, in the animal kingdom that we knew about that uh, was comparable to the lentivirus of HIV in human populations. Well, indeed, there's a a completely almost analogous um, bunch of viruses that live in primates. And these are called, uh, these lentiviruses that live in primates, just like human immunodeficiency virus spells out HIV, these are called simian immunodeficiency viruses, SIV strains. And there are many, many um, SIV strains that live very happily with their primate hosts. So, again, I told you that there are many microbes that live happily with their hosts, and it's only when a microbe like SIV gets away from its host that it's living commensally and fine with to a host that it's not supposed to be in, like humans, that disease can occur. So many of these primates um, for centuries have lived with their SIV strains and not um, gotten sick. And there are SIV strains found in chimpanzees, gorillas, monkeys, African green monkeys, baboons, sooty mangabees, sykes monkeys, uh, many, many primate species. So let's think about, first I'm going to tell you about which strains of SIV most look like our strain of HIV, and then we'll speculate on how um, that crossover from the primate to the human occurred. So let's um, do a little bit more background about what are the types of HIV that are found in human populations. It's pretty easy. There are actually just two major types of HIV strains in the world, HIV-1 and HIV-2. It does get a little more complicated because from there, there are some groups um, of HIV 1. There are four different groups um, Group M, N, O, and P. And then Group M, HIV, is that pandemic strain. So that is the strain that causes over 90% of all human infections HIV 1, Group M. And Group M has a number of different subtypes that we actually call clades. And just I'll point out, there are different clades. There's not an E, but A, B, C, D, F, G, and so on. And clade B is the strain um, that's found in the U.S. So this map below is kind of small, but you can see that B is the strain that's predominantly found in the U.S. So when we think about HIV and which strains are homologous to SIV strains, let's just focus on HIV-1 and HIV-2. So it. If you just look at, and I'm not talking about how the crossover occurred, but if you just look at what strain looks like the other, HIV-1, the major SIV strain that closely, most, closely resembles SIV, uh, most closely resembles HIV-1, is the particular SIV strain found in the common chimpanzee. And this um, subspecies is called pantroclodides troglodides, and there 's an example in the San francisco zoo and poor guy he 's all by himself, um, but he often sits up on a tree, and he um, I have to go to the zoo a lot because I have these children, um, but but he this is this SIV strain looks like, if you sequence it, if you actually look in a laboratory and look at what it looks like, it looks most like HIV-1, the one in the common chimpanzee. HIV-2, its SIV strain that it most closely looks like, is an SIV strain found in sudi mangabees. And this illustration is from a really nice paper, and I've included the um, papers if you want more information down at the bottom. Um, but this illustration shows a group of researchers that went to East Cameroon, and they would collect fecal samples from all the different primate species that live in East Cameroon, and they could see which SIV strain from these samples looked most like HIV-1. So it's actually quite simple then. So HIV-1, group N, M, and O all look most like the SIV from the common chimpanzee. Group P, and this is a very rare strain and was first reported out of Europe, but it was an immigrant from West Africa. Um, group P actually is a, is a strain that most looks like an SIV uh, that is found in gorillas. And then HIV-2, as I told you, looks most like um, the SIV strain from mangabees. So that just tells you what the strains look like. That doesn't tell you how this jump was made from primate to human. So how did we get the viruses from these primates, these SIV viruses that are living in these primates, how did they jump into human populations? Well, one of the first theories that was um, propounded on this was um, published um, in uh, by a Um, Journalist named Edward Hooper. And this publication was called The River A Journey to the Source of HIV AIDS. And the backstory here was that um, in the late 50s, there was a competition for the um, vaccines that were going to be used um, globally. So there was the oral vaccine that had been designed uh, by Sabin. Um, And then there was um, an injectable vaccine that was designed by Salk. And um, there was a Polish scientist named Hilary Koprowski who was actually competing with Sabin for the development of the first oral polio vaccine. And the National Institutes of Health in the late 50s held a special committee to say, okay, which one's more effective, which one's the most safe, and Sabin won out as the developer of the oral vaccine. Um, but Kropowski, um, who was in um, affiliated with Belgium at the time, um, went on, um, despite this recommendation, to administer his vaccine to a million people in um, in uh, territories that were controlled by Belgium at the time. So um, at the time, this was called the Belgian Congo, now called the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, and Burundi. And so a a million or more of these uh, oral vaccines were given. And um, the theory was, and this theory was uh, propounded by Edward Hooper and then actually published – uh, by the Rolling Stone, which gave it um, a magazine, which gave it some popularity, um, was that Kaprowski was responsible for this. Um, the, I'm sorry that these slides are cut off. A lot of them are. But um, there was a lot of reasons why this theory didn't actually hold up. Um, one is that the culture median that Kaprowski used to make these oral vaccines actually were not um, in um, cells from chimpanzees. And we, again, know that HIV-1M is most closely related to chimpanzee cells. They were... Um, using African green kidney monkey cells. Two, and I'm going to talk about that, the timing didn't fit. Of 1957 uh, to 1960 was the time that he was administering these vaccines. It didn't fit for later on when when we think that HIV entered human populations. So Kuprowski sued Rolling Stones for defamation and he got a dollar in damages. So what was that crossover event? And I would make a request... Um, that these slides are cut off by the way they 're formatted, but if you guys are okay with it i 'm just going to proceed, um, but there are going to be a lot of cut offs here but what was the what was the crossover event? you know the most common prevailing theory and i 'm going to give a little bit more evidence about this is that um, is that um, the possibility of crossover was frequent contact between humans and non-human primates that really occurred um, at the beginning of the 20th century, sort of late in the 19th century. And that was through the medium of the bushmeat trade. Um, The bushmeat trade actually refers to hunting wildlife, uh, not just primates, um, for food um, or for exotic purposes. um, But a lot of the focus has been on the hunting of um, primates. And um, a lot of this theory came, I'll refer you to a popular author and a scientist named Nathan Wolf, who looked at um, uh, all these hunters um, and all the, H, all the SIV strains that they're exposed to. So if you take one of these bushmeat hunters and look at their DNA, it's actually littered with all these SIV strains that they probably were exposed to from different primates um, that they were hunting, um, from the blood exposure to those primates. And so that was the crossover event. And the spread was probably something to do, as I'm going to talk about, more with social disruption, colonization, the sex trade, and history. Um, So this is an example of a a nice article that summarizes the bushmeat market and um, this unappetizing um, look at the bushmeat market in West and Central Africa with, again, not just primates. And um, the reason that this trade grew up so much more uh, at the turn of the century was really access to modern firearms. There were logging roads that that were created between forests and cities. And um, really, at this point, the extinction of some primates are really threatened. And this is an example of um, Nathan Wolf's work that I um, indicated to you before. But this is, for example, um, the percentage of HIV-positive persons, this is a paper, In rural villages in Cameroon who report contact with wild animals as represented by the dark lines here and contact with non-human primates as represented by the wider bars. And you can see that a very high proportion of um, people um, eat wild species or eat um, non-human primates. A large proportion, up to 80%, um, butcher um, wild species or butcher um, non-human primates, up to 60% hunt, and then also there's some keeping of um, non-human primates as pets. And this is a little bit technical, and there's no reason to understand this fully. I want to just give you the gist of this, is that if you look at the same 14 rural villages in Cameroon, HIV-infected people in those villages not only have the common strain that spread from human to human um, in that region, but they also have, again, in their... um, in their genomes or in their very fabric of their DNA, which um, HIV, we know, likes to knit itself into our DNA, and we'll talk about that um, more um, in a couple of weeks when we talk about therapies, um, HIV, these, these villagers who are exposed to non-human primates at such a high rate not only have a predominant strain but have many, many, many other strains that resemble SIV strains in different non-human primates, including some that we've never even identified. Um, So the message is really that HIV genetic diversity is commonplace in villages with frequent contact with non-human primates. And this is at this point, at this point, the prevailing theory of how HIV um, crossed over. So the next question then becomes, when did HIV cross over? When did it get to human populations? And I told you that the first description in the United States was in the uh, MMWR on June 5, 1981, Um, there hadn't been previous reports from the region of origin. If we think the region of origin is namely uh, specifically West Africa, there had not been previous to 1981 outbreaks of diseases that we usually um, think are associated with having advanced immunodeficiency. But this is difficult to describe in an area where there may be a number of other competing diseases and tropical diseases and and a number of other outbreaks of other things. Um, And so that may not be um, the focus. There was a case report um, that created quite a bit of controversy um, that was published in, again, one of these um, big medical journals called The Lancet in 1959 of a 25-year-old man in uh, the U.K. who was a naval seaman, um, and he came in severely emaciated. They used these sorts of terms in 1959, so remorseless. Uh, anal lesion, um, an ulcer eating into the, his upper lip, which is illustrated here. And the post in 1959, this case report revealed in his lungs pneumocystis um, and cytomegalovirus 2, uh, a virus and a fungi that are, uh, um, that are associated with um, HIV or advanced immunodeficiency. And later in 1983, the pathologist from the Manchester Royal Infirmary um, took his specimens because he had post-mortems available and claimed that they were positive on on what's called polymerase chain reaction for HIV. And that created a lot of controversy um, because uh, they didn't report their methods well. And um, and they wouldn't release any of his specimens for anyone to verify that. So that's still um, very very debatable. And Edward Hooper, the same writer who gave us the river, did call publicly for an apology to the family and his fiance um, for this report. So a lot of these are cut off. But um, I but I want to um, I want to 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 go to the next um, idea of where we got this idea of when HIV could have entered human populations. Well, the only way to truly know is to have in time human specimens. So if we had um, uh, human specimens from West Africa from the 1800s, then we could understand if HIV had been present in human populations in the 1800s. But there are no human specimens. They're not plasma specimens. They're not lymph node specimens. They're not tissue samples sitting around from which you can identify HIV that go back very far. Um, some of the oldest known stored specimens from Africa uh, were 1,200 plasma specimens that were stored at the University of Washington in Seattle that had been collected in 1959 um, from uh, what was uh, then called the Belgian Congo, now called, of course, the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the city of Kinshasa, um, Leopoldville at the time. And uh, these specimens had been, collect- been collected for an entirely different purpose. They had been collected for, um, uh, to look at the relationship um, between um, something called G6PD deficiency and the development of malaria. But they went back to those specimens collected in 1959 and analyzed all of 1,213 for HIV. And HIV was found in one patient in 1959. And this Zaire 59 strain, then it was such, thus called, was intensively studied. And um, uh, and essentially, the way that they could study the Zaire 59 strain is a couple of ways. They could look at it sequence it and say how much it differed from the chimpanzee SIV strain, which we think HIV-1 came from, and then also you could look at XIR-59 and say how much did it differ from the modern HIV strains that were in human populations at the time of this um, paper, which was in the year 2000. A- and you, you can see by the illustration that zar 59 is there, and it closely resembled some of the strains that we find at clades that we find in human populations, B, D, and F, And they did these kind of complex, what's called phylogenetic analysis, and said, you know, Xyra 59 is so close to BDNF, it probably could not have entered human populations much, uh, much before this 1959. And so the estimated date at this point, as of 2000, when this paper was published, and your slides, the full slide will be published, um, at this point we thought HIV entered human populations around 1930. And then another specimen was found, because, again, that's really the only way to know when <laughs> HIV was in human populations. And a lymph node was found from an adult female who had um, lymphoma in Kinshasa, um, and it was embedded in paraffin, and this was found from 1960, and this strain, she, she had HIV, and this strain was called DRC-60. So they thought, okay, DRC-60 is going to look a lot like Zyre 59, because... SIV crossed over into humans around 1930. This is now 1960. It had about 30 years um, to evolve in the human host. So it shouldn't look too, they shouldn't look too different from each other. And then 1960 to the year 2008, which is when DRC-60 was found, um, we know that evolution occurs at a certain um, rate in the human host. So we thought that, that this would just verify the hypothesis. But in fact, DRC-60 actually looked a lot different than zaire 59 And they were different enough that it looked like there was probably a longer time for HIV to be evolving and growing and mutating in the human host. And so the estimate from this new sample that was found is that it looked like the ancestor of HIV-1M crossed into human populations probably around the turn of the 20th century. Anywhere between 1884 and 1924 is their estimate, and 1908 was their median. So that's when they think uh, by this latest data that HIV entered human populations. And then everything that occurred from there was history, was West African history, was the history of colonization and of social disruption of what Um, Western countries did in in West Africa um, that disrupted West Africa so uh, much to create um, uh, the growth of this disease. So if we think that HIV entered around the turn of the century, if you look at now a map of Western Africa at the time, there was no city in the region, no city in the region at the time that had a population before 1910 of greater than 10,000 people. Enter colonization. Enter Belgium. Enter um, all that was happening in the setting of uh, colonialism, including um, the uh, establishment of the sex trade and, um, and and creation of larger cities and uh, and um, and cities in which um, trade was occurring. And so, at that point, um, once uh, colonization, uh, colonialism occurred in Africa, cities became larger. And by the second half of the, uh, of, the ni- of the 20th century, you can see that populations were growing in size. And by about 1960, Kinshasa had reached uh, greater than 100,000 in population. So the idea here was that it's possible that HIV was percolating in human populations around the turn of the century. And the first half of the 20th century, relatively undetected. There were people who were far apart. Uh, there was not big cities. There was not people crowded together. And importantly, there wasn't a sex trade uh, that was established by, um, uh, by colonists who uh, came and established this. And so, um, and so probably what happened was it was the superimposition of that history on top of a low-grade percolating um, uh, virus in the community that led to the spread of HIV. And uh, I will refer you to this article because it's a nice article if you want to sort of understand all of this. Um, this was published again in The Lancet in 2011. But um, if you look at the chimpanzee on the right, again, we think that the pan troglodytes troglotides strain passed over into human populations in the 1900s. Um, the gorilla strain, um, which was uh, group P, probably passed over in the 1920s. Um, the Sudi-Mengabi strain probably passed over in the 1930s. And then evolution occurred within the human host as it spread within human populations. And then all you have to do is then look at Western African history and then go to Eastern African and Southern African history um, to understand uh, what happened from there. I do want to bring up one tiny point um, because I don't want to dwell on this. This is, uh, this is provocative, um, but I do want to refer you to an interesting paper um, that Dr. Habler actually sent my way in December. It was just published in December two thousand twelve. Um, but this this was a study, which looked at it needs to be replicated. Uh, only group that's ever looked at this, but looked at specifically the Biaka Western Pygmies in West Africa. Um, and this particular population is exposed most to this common chimpanzee, and specifically that, that, that chimpanzee, uh, the pan uh, troglodytes um that uh, has the SIV strain most closely related to our HIV strain. And when they looked at the genome or the genetic structure of this particular subpopulation, Biaka Western Pygmies, they had evolved genes within the human genome that were protective against HIV. Um, they had genes in their genome that are only seen in for instance, uh, um, Western European populations that were possibly evolved protection from HIV, uh, HIV uh, as a happy accident to evolving protection from smallpox. They had genes in their genome that we not, would not have expected in Western Africa, but they were all associated with being protected from HIV infection. And this is – I'm going to leave you with that. There are ideas that HIV um, may have crossed over into human populations, at least human populations with a lot of exposure to this particular primate, a long time ago, and may have even led to changes in the human genome in this particularly isolated population. Leave you with that. So, um, so let's go back to history. So, what happened from Western Africa? So. Um, If I if we think that um, that I told you that Kinshasa started uh, essentially burgeoned in around 1960 to a large population size, there was still long distances between cities in Western Africa, difficulty in travel. Um, There was insecurity and, and violence at the time. Um, as, as as colonialism was being fought. and um, But what needed to happen for this virus to spread successfully was that it was carried from Western to Eastern Africa, probably in the 70s. And at that point, the spread was rapid. Um, if you look at, for instance, the five countries that border Lake Victoria in East Africa, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Tanzania, and Kenya, um, we know by the mid-'80s that the epidemic had reached... Um, really uh, frightening proportions uh, already um, by the mid-80s At that, at, at, in, in those countries. So um, there were lots of factors that led to this. There was labor migration and by 1988, 35% of truck drivers in Uganda were positive for HIV. There's a high ratio of men in the urban centers in East Africa in these countries at the time. Um, There was a relatively low status of women, circumcision seems to be uh, protective, and there were low rates of circumcision in the region. There was a high rate of sex trade and the sexually transmitted infections, and um, uh, by 1986, 85% of sex workers in Nairobi were infected with the virus. And then the virus had to just travel down to South Africa by the Tanzam Road, and by the mid and late 80s, um, Sub-Saharan Africa and South Africa um, was really the focus of this pandemic. And I'm going to show you a series of maps, and then we're going to end, um, that, that illustrate this um, this this incredible spread and this devastation. But this is the map from UNAIDS from 1985, where you can see the darker areas are showing regions of high prevalence of HIV infection. So, again, Western and Central Africa predominate. By uh, 1995, we have spread all over Africa, very um, deep red areas in South Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, and over in Southeast Asia. And then this is 2005 um, really concentrated uh, epidemics in Sub-Saharan Africa spread to um, uh, the former Soviet Union uh, and darker areas, as you can see in South Asia um, and over to the United States. And this is a um, uh, again from that same article that I refer you to, if you're interested in really exploring how each particular strain went from place to place to place, but just to focus in on the United States, we think that um, this clade B, that's the most predominant strain in the United States, was introduced um, from Haiti around 1972, and that's the circled area there. And this is the current map that will come up again and again um, uh, in throughout our course, HIV past, present, and future, because this is the total number of adults and children estimated to be living with HIV as of the end of 2011, 34.2 million people infected, and as Diane already told you, um, uh, 34.2 million infected, but 2 million new infections. Um, I just want to present a teaser for what's going to be coming up in a couple of weeks when we focus on HIV infection in women and children, but um, if you look at the purple line here, that represents the percentage of adults Uh, worldwide who are living with HIV who are female. And you can see the purple line globally, the 50% mark was reached um, quite a number of years ago. And we're now in 2010, uh, you know, definitely at a pandemic that affects men and women equally. And in fact, in regions of the world where the epidemic is most concentrated, like sub-Saharan Africa, which is the green line, um, you can see that the epidemic is most pronounced in um, women, in fact, with up to almost 60% of women being infected, 40% of men in densely affected regions. And one comment on children, but we're going to go over this a lot more. But at this point, Africa has 15 million AIDS orphans. And um, and this is defined as children who have lost one or more parents to AIDS. And um, I do want to point out that there is a character in the Sesame Street in South Africa who's designed, he's ta- Kami is actually both an AIDS orphan and HIV infected himself. And, um, and he is literally present in the, in the um, South Africa Takalini Sesame, which is the Sesame Street equivalent to teach children about HIV. And when Kami tried to come over to the United States, the U.S. Traditional Values Coalition in the Senate um, said that, that would, he would encourage homosexuality. But I don't think he's gay. I think he's just a little kid. Um, so stop AIDS, make the promise. So thank you so much. And I'll take questions now on the origin or when it entered human populations, and then we'll move to our panel. please introduce yourself, if you're okay with that, when you ask a question. So the spread of... The question was that the spread of HIV did it start from the 1970s. So um, the theory is that it entered human populations way before that, probably around um, the early uh, 1900s. But that in 1970s is when... Cities, and so that that HIV was probably sitting there in human populations at a low rate in West Africa and Central Africa um, without causing major outbreaks. Um, it was really the the theory of history superimposed on top of the crossover is that it was when cities developed that were large and concentrated in the setting of urbanization, in the setting of social disruption that occurred with colonization, and in the setting of of the establishment of a sex trade where HIV could be spread sexually, that HIV started to spread more quickly. And that, at least in history, um, if you look at Western Africa and specifically at the Belgian Congo at the time, what it was called, um, uh, that Mainly occurred in the 60s and the 70s, and then, as I showed you, as cities became bigger and as these sex trades grew, it seemed like the spread, again, the manifestation of the disease, um, was more obvious in the in in the later decades, 80s and 90s. But no, we think that HIV probably started and came into humans earlier, but it was it required a certain population density to manifest. Yes, yeah, sorry, I should have, yes, yes, I should have explained this better. What this means, what this is indicating, of all HIV-infected people in a country, the percentage who are female seem to be 57%, and the percentage who are male in that region would be 43%. So of that 30% who are actually infected, this is the breakdown by sex. So not of the entire population, right. Right, but, but of the HIV infection. Now, in this country, we're about, um, and again, this is, this is limited by our surveillance in this country, um, but in this country right now, of all the people who are infected in the United States, there's about 26% of them are female. So it really depends on the setting. So um, I quoted you from 1986 that 85% of sex workers in Nairobi were infected. But there have been major um, strides in prevention uh, in in sex workers in a number of different uh, countries in Africa, and, and there have been great strides in India, for example. So those overall percentages have come down. Um, if anyone has an exact percentage in Nairobi at this point among sex workers, I'd welcome input from any of the faculty. But I don't know where we are right now, but it it, it couldn't have gotten worse than 85%. And with prevention efforts, it's probably much better than that. And one important uh, point about that is is there are regions where there's what's called generalized epidemics and what's called concentrated epidemics. So there are places in the world where we think HIV just seems to be in specific high-risk groups. But um, in countries that are hardest hit, we call them generalized epidemics because the HIV rate may be higher in groups that are at more risk, like sex workers, but the HIV is spread to the general population, and that's called a generalized epidemic. And we can talk more about that after the So that is a great question and will be covered more the last day of the course um, when Peter Hunt talks about immunology of HIV and Jay Levy will probably approach this a little bit next week. There are a number of reasons why some people um, tend to take a longer time to to progress to get sick and there are some people who can even control their, their own virus and you're right it has to do with their own immunity and their own host ability to do that and there's Uh, More details on that to come, and I I would refer you to those talks. Yeah, this is a great question. So the question is, um, uh, I hope everyone heard the question, because I want to explain it a little bit. So um, in populations that are highly exposed, like a bushmeat hunter population they actually have probably multiple crossover events. So multiple strains, because they have the blood-to-blood exposure, you're absolutely right, they are, have cuts on their hands, they're um, using uh, knives, they're exposed to the blood products as they uh, butcher the animals. So there is absolutely blood-to-blood exposure, like you said. And they can have host a number of different HIV strains. But in the general population, it's the strain that's most efficiently transmitted from human to human that goes crazy, that gets spread across the world. And so somehow HIV group M, you know, HIV-1 group M is most efficiently transferred. Otherwise, we'd have the gorilla strain everywhere, which is group P. We'd have the N strain, which is very rare everywhere, the O strain. So there's something about the M strain, and, and there's different reasons for it, that it's just most efficiently transferred. Uh, it's spread from human to human. So this is a great question, and this is also around um, sort of the life cycle and the mechanism of HIV infection, which will be most revealed when um, we talk about treatment of HIV, because to talk about treatment of HIV, and George Beatty will be doing so, we're going to talk about the life cycle of the virus. And you're absolutely right. The virus enters and uncoats and makes itself into DNA and then eventually integrates into the human cell, uh, chromosome. But this aspect that you said that how can you get it out of the chromosome that question, which you're referring to the possibility of cure, is going to be um, is going to be talked about in the last day of the course. So I would really encourage you to come and hear Steve Deeks' dynamic talks. So I can't cover that that all here, um, but there's he, he's going to do a great job talking about the immunology and 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 the possibility of cure. Any other um, and then I think we'll just take uh, uh, just two more. Okay, right here, please. Yeah. No, it's an, it's an excellent question, and, uh, you know, to give the most simplistic example, there's a, um, uh, um, they are resistant partially to HIV because they have mutations in um, a gate called the CCR5 receptor that allows HIV to enter human cells. And if you have mutations in that gate, or better yet, you don't make that gate at all, you can be exposed to HIV as much as you want, and you'll never get infected. And so that experiment that you're proposing to bring that mutational gate into other humans to help them resist HIV infection is the very topic, again, of the last uh, day of the course where we're going to talk about cure. And we're going to talk about those very ideas. So it's an excellent thought to so hold that question. Yeah, that's a really good question about natural hosts being getting sick when exposed, uh, when they're infected with uh, SIV. Because, um, for instance, the macaque is not supposed to have Um, the SIV pseudomangami strain in it. And so the actual model that we use in the laboratory, the primate model for HIV-2 infection, is we've taken the uh, SIV-SM pseudomangami, put it in macaques and then uh, the macaque gets sick and that's the primate model. But we used to think that SIVs didn't make their primates sick. And there's some very, very recent data that that may may not be true. Um, And this was specifically in the um, gorilla model, not model, but the gorilla, um, and it was the SIV gorilla strain that, if present in gorillas, seem to sicken the gorillas more than um, gorillas that don't have that SIV strain. So the lentivirus is so slow that it's possible that it is actually affecting ultimately its own primate, but there's so many competing diseases and so com- many competing illnesses that it may have been that other things got to the primate before that occurred. And I'll definitely send you that reference if you um, email me. I'm on the global server, and e- I'll send you that reference. Um, that's true of HIV as well. If it's in low level in human populations if, and, and in places where there are a lot of tropical diseases, you could be getting sick from other things and dying from other things before HIV had a chance to make you sick. Um, I think we should stop because uh, we have a very exciting panel, so I'm going to um, allow Diane to come here. So thank you so much. I'm sorry about these slides being kind of messed up, but I will email you these slides, the updated slides, um, later this week. Thank you.
1: So thank you, Monica, for the terrific talk, and thanks to the audience. Those were really excellent um, questions. A lot of them are going to be addressed um, during the, the course. So now we're going to talk about the the history of the AIDS epidemic. And I don't think any community is ever quite ready for an epidemic. And that was certainly the case in San Francisco in the early, the early 1980s when um, HIV uh, appeared apparently precipitously. Um, I think the city was on the the, the heels of the, the, the Harvey Milk assassination and the George Moscone. Um, there was a lot of uh, bursts of sexual freedom and there was a whole confluence of events that happened um, that allowed HIV really to just um, erupt, particularly in the MSM community in our city. Um, I would refer you in terms of the early years of the HIV epidemic to a book which is called And the Band Played On by Randy Schiltz. Um In fact, I was thinking at the end of the course, I've oh, always got extra copies of this. Maybe we'll raffle off a copy for those of you who make it to the end of the course. It's really great reading, and it goes into the very um, early days of the HIV epidemic, particularly Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco. Um, on our... Uh, Uh, curriculum Um, we had uh, Dr. Paul Volberding who is featured heavily in the band played on as a speaker for the second uh, part of our mini medical school this evening. Um, Dr. Volberding sends his regrets and he was unfortunately unable to attend um, this evening. However in his place and I hope you will not be disappointed um, we were all thinking well what is the best way for us to convey the history of the HIV epidemic here in our own city. And that's by asking people to talk about who were here and who were experiencing um, the epidemic. So what we have done is we're going now to move to a panel discussion. And I'd like to invite the panelists to come up to the table. And for this segment of the course, um, what we'll do is I'll ask the um, panelists a couple of questions and then um, uh, Dr. Hare is going to give us a brief overview of the epidemiology currently in San Francisco, and then we will open it up to a um, panel discussion. So I am going to let the panelists really share with you their story, um, and they will uh, individually be introduced um, as I ask them questions as opposed to going through a lengthy introduction. So. Um, I'm going to start um, with asking a question to our um, first panelist, Mr. Um, uh, Lou uh, Grosso. One of the things that we do in medical school and in medical education is we invite um, patients to talk about their disease and their disease experience. And I have colleagues who work in various different fields. And they say, "You know, how did you guys make so much progress in AIDS? And how did things go so quickly? And frankly, it's never been quickly enough for us. But I can tell you the key secret ingredient is the community. And we in San Francisco have had a community of people affected with this disease. We would never have made as much progress that we've made. And one of the individuals who really, to me, is emblematic of giving their time, talking to people about HIV, being a a really true crusader is Mr. Um, Lou Grosso. And I'd like everyone really to give Lou a round of applause for joining with us this evening. So I thought we could start out by um, asking Lou um, just to share his story um, about what happened um, in the early years of the HIV epidemic for Lou.
3: Thank you. <laughs> um, well, in I guess my story started. Um, I was born in no. <laughs> um, in 19. 19- Eighty-six. I came back from a two and a half year stint in Germany, and while I was there, um, I found out that the last person I had had sex with before going to, leaving for Germany, so that would have been June, nineteen eighty-three, had died of. AIDS while I was in Germany. He got sick and died. Of course, I didn't know he had it. So I the first day I got, I arrived back home in San Francisco on January 1st and I had an appointment with my doctor on January 3rd and I was tested and it came back that I was Uh, HIV positive And he Sent me to A doctor who was then The so called expert um, Dr. Robert Armstrong I think it was his name He was down in Los Gatos And um, uh, He determined That my T cells were really low They were like around 200 or so And therefore By definition I had AIDS And that I probably had three years to live And that there was really nothing much I could do Just stay healthy, be safe Come in for checkups Um, So, of course, being young um, Kind of said, yeah, okay And went on with the rest of my life And... um, what I did experience uh, one real issue which I hadn't told anybody about, um, I w- had a dentist appointment in late 1986, and um, I went into my my dentist who I'd known for a long time and I told him I had AIDS and he had a real hissy fit and threw me out of the hospital. Of his office, I mean, literally yelling, screaming, and just threw me out. And that was just, yeah, Well, okay, I guess I can't be open about my HIV status anymore. Um, so much for medical community helping you out. But um, after after. That experience um, I tried keeping it all to myself um, As much as I could um, Didn't really tell anybody Didn't go out um, 1989 came And Well I'm supposed to die So I better get on with the rest of my life And I started uh, I moved to San Francisco Moved in with uh, A couple um, Got a new job in a new industry. I became an office manager at a law bookstore, of all things. I was, my profession before this was fasten your seatbelts. I was in bowling. I was a bowling center manager, a bowling center mechanic. <laughs> I taught bowling. I, yeah, anything to do with Bowling. So I moved to the city and got a job as an office manager at a law book store. And um, start a new beginning because I, my life was supposed to end. So new beginnings. Then um, the partner, my roommate, um, started getting sick. He had found out he had HIV. Um, which, But he wasn't sick with AIDS. Um, and he started having problems and I helped him with legal issues and I started taking him to doctor's appointments and we became close. And uh, he got real sick in 1993. Um, November 3rd, I remember, I took him to San Francisco General and they did a bunch of tests and um, they came back and said that he had cancer and probably had about six months but they really weren't sure, their tests were showing cancer but they weren't couldn't be more specific on that so they admitted him to the hospital and six weeks later he was in the hospital for six weeks and they, he, they came back and said to him um, we know you're sick, we know you've got cancer we can't locate it we don't know where it is. Um, so we're going to say you have AIDS. It was the, the you just fell through the, all the slots, and the, we can't figure it out, so you must have AIDS. And they sent us over to Ward 86 at San Francisco General, the outpatient clinic, and got in touch with the terrific doctor, Dr. Donald Abrams, and who um, was also he was an AIDS doctor and an oncologist, and we got it all figured out. And he did have cancer. He had Dan had KS in his colon, and no markings of KS anywhere on his body. It was all in his colon. And. um uh, I fell in love with with, um, Donald Abrams and he became my doctor too and um, uh, Dan died in June and um, uh, June of 94 and uh, Donald and I I was his patient for many many years until 2004 and that's when I met Brad and Brad became my doctor um when I I was exposed to HIV, like I, I, it could have been as early as 1979, or as late as that June to 1983 date. Um, uh, my the medicine I took. Um, I at one point in 1989 I started taking AZT. It i didn't have any problems with the meds at all i it didn't affect me i didn't get sick from them there was no side effects um it did nothing for me as far as my numbers stayed the same um in nineteen ninety eight i think it was I started uh the um uh the new drugs um my T cells went up a little bit they went from 200 to 300 Um, I feel like I'm one of those people that um, there's something keeping me alive I don't know what it is Um, but something's doing it and uh, that's why I participate in as many studies as I can um, as often as I can Because I want them to figure out what's keeping me alive. So um, that's about it.
1: Next panelist is um, Dionne Jones, who is a nurse who was raised in France, um, did Peace Corps in Togo, and then made her way to San Francisco. And she's going to tell us how actually she got that job and uh, what she's been doing since. But Dionne, what I'd like you to do is to 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 share with the with the the students. Um, What it was like as a provider in the very, very early days of the HIV epidemic, particularly in San Francisco General Hospital.
4: Okay, thank you. Um, I have some uh, sister nurses out there, and probably brother (laughs) nurses too. Um, So, um, thanks a lot, Lou. Mark leaned over and said, you dumped Donald Abrams for a younger man.
5: <laughs> I'm so disappointed, Liz.
4: <laughs> so, um, so going back to uh, Monica's story and her timeline, so think back, like, you know, early 1980s in San Francisco. And um, in preparation for this uh, panel, yesterday I got, I uh, watched this new documentary that's called How to Survive a Plague which is uh, nominated for the Academy Awards in the documentary section and it's um, really about the history of ACT UP primarily on the East Coast uh, in New York Uh, and uh, it's a really interesting film for people who are interested in the history of HIV some very uh, incredible and moving uh, uh, archival footage um And I think that what it reminded me of is that um, every community around the world has its story about HIV, and we have our story here in san francisco and we 've hosted at San Francisco General many visitors from all over the world that we've collaborated with on research projects and um, and and travel back and forth and they always I always ask them I, I tend to be the person to have to do the Um, uh, who are our patients, and why is our HIV epidemic so different here in San Francisco than it is in Tanzania or South Africa or China or Japan. And every place has its story of how this epidemic evolved. And our story, really, in the 1980s, um, started with with this epidemic and this virus really... um, uh, locating itself and finding a host within the gay community through, in the United States in the major urban centers, going back to Monica's point, particularly Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York. And for those of you that are old enough to remember, this was an incredibly vibrant time in the gay rights movement, coming after 30 years of a really growing and maturing civil rights movement that started Uh, in the African-American community in the 1950s and then got picked up in the women's rights movement. And then its natural progression was it came upon the lesbians and gay men fighting for civil rights. It was a straight-up civil rights movement. And in San Francisco, we had a very mature, it was a very political city since, since a long time, And we had a very mature gay rights movement with institutions. And as Diane referenced, we had elected uh, our first openly gay elected official, Harvey Milk. We had been through the tragedy of his assassination and that of the mayor of our city. Um, And uh, it was a mature movement and um, with a lot of people coming from all over the world and all over the United States. In fact, in the early 1980s, the estimate of the number of gay men living in San Francisco was close to 200,000 people, and then you have this uh, this HIV virus. It's a sexually transmitted disease, and um, and just like the women's movement, really took up the issue of women's rights and the issue also of control over our sexuality, and the issue of in the lesbian gay rights movement was taking up the issue of sexuality and the right to have sex and so here you have a sexually transmitted disease and this virus that is entering in our city at a time when people are having a lot of sex and um, and so very quickly it emerged these patients these people were arriving very sick who had previously been well they were very young for the most part and uh, our institutions, our health institutions, were really overrun. So I started working at San Francisco General in 1982. I just graduated from nursing school at City College. And, um, and I was assigned to a medicine ward. And um, I would say close to a third of the 34 patients were people living with, living with AIDS and dying of AIDS. So back in those days, HIV disease was... Uh, a combination of uh, caring for extremely ill patients, sort of intensive care nursing, and also caring for people who are dying. And so you had these two things that you were holding at the same time of trying to keep people alive who are extremely sick, and at the same time caring for people as they're dying and really learning how to do that with a population where you're not expecting to be having to do end-of-life care with a 21-year-old or a 22-year-old who just found out three months ago that they had this thing called AIDS, which back in those days, we didn't even know what caused it. So by 1982, we knew we, we knew what AIDS was. AIDS was defined. We weren't calling it gay-related immune deficiency anymore. We knew most likely... That it was a sexually transmitted disease and also bloodborne, meaning we had to protect our blood supply, and we had to understand how drug use was facilitating um, the transmission of this virus, but we still didn 't know what caused it and in um, the city, really, and this is one of the wonderful things about this uh, documentary, "The How to Survive a Plague," is that at that point in time, you had these major building blocks of a city, so you needed the science, and you needed the medicine, and you needed the policy people, and particularly the public health policy people, and you needed the politicians, you needed the healthcare workers, and most importantly, what we had, as Diane referred to, is really what we had was this community of activists, some of whom were infected, many who were not, who were at the table demanding that the services be provided and that we figure out how to do this, how to do it right, and how to do it well. And I think that that was what was so unique in, in a place like San Francisco that, that we could do that. And many mistakes were made and there were many, many hard discussions where weighing the public health Uh, on the civil rights issues, for example, the whole issue of closure of the bathhouses. These are extremely complicated issues. We face comparable issues today. And, And the whole city was really involved and engaged in this. And our physicians and nurses who were... By day, taking care of patients, we're at meetings at night with ACT UP or at the Health Commission or at public forums trying to answer the questions about what is going on. And, um, and I think that that's one of the things that in San Francisco you have to really appreciate is that um, the strength of a response is really in direct proportion of the strength of the institutions. And so one of the the unique things in San Francisco is that people in San Francisco support their public health department. They do it every time a ballot measure is on the ballot to rebuild Laguna Honda Hospital or rebuild San Francisco General, where they're essentially voting against their financial self-interest. We're agreeing to tax ourselves because we believe these institutions are really important. We believe in the strength of community organizations, and we also had to figure out how to have these conversations at the table where scientists, some of whom you're going to hear from in this course, are for the first time sitting across the table with patients and having to have these conversations about how to take care of this illness, how to do it right, and how to do it well. And, um, you know, for me, when I came to, to San Francisco General in 1982, my goal in life was to become a midwife so here I am 30 years later <laughs> and, and I found myself you know after the first 10 years of like okay how did I go from wanting to be a nurse taking care of women giving birth to being a nurse where I'm primarily taking care of men who are dying not exclusively men by then but um, but I think there's something about for me as of all of these different um, these different institutions and in different parts of society that have to come together to respond and to how to survive this plague that was um, that was so compelling um, that uh, that I couldn't leave <laughs> and so uh, here I am 30 years later and um, and I think some of those some of the reasons are the same now and I think as the course goes on and we talk about HIV today. Um, and the reasons why we can be hopeful and we can be talking about a cure, the reasons why um, somebody like Lou is here with us tonight so that we can really celebrate um, what his ongoing and continued contribution is to continuing to figure out how to do this well and how to do it right. is uh, is a really compelling story. And I, I uh, congratulate you all for coming to this course. And uh, really, I think you'll enjoy the speakers over the next few weeks because it's an exciting uh, uh, and very compelling story.
1: Um. Thank you, Dionne. You really uh, want to thank you personally for all you've done in the epidemic, and you make the nursing profession proud. Uh, Dionne is a frequent speaker in NPR. She's she's often interviewed just about our clinic and what's happening there, and uh, which has been really wonderful to have her. Our next um, panelist um, I wanted to ask to comment is Dr. Mark Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson is a professor at UCSF, uh, an AIDS expert on our faculty who's been working in the epidemic, and will share with you from the very beginning. Mark, I was—I think we've heard a lot of positive and aspirational things that we've done in San Francisco as a city, but myself being a provider going through these early dark days, can you comment a little bit on your experience, but also what it was like, and Lou alluded this to a little bit, when we were trying to get care for our patients early on, often what a challenge it was when within our own profession where people allegedly had a commitment to care, sometimes that we had to overcome some obstacles.
5: Um, I'm so so, so wanna, yeah, you can
1: examples. talk about your so. your early years and, for example, when we would try to get procedures done and things like that. Some of the challenges that we had.
0: Um,
5: well, I think I think at the beginning, it, I mean, I graduated from medical school here in 1981, just before those um, articles that Monica showed. Uh, the CDC published <clears throat> and people had no idea what was going on and um, the, the way that doctors handled it was a full court press um, and I, as it became apparent that this was an, an infectious disease for which there was no effective treatment at all um, And it became more about just trying to make people comfortable. And when it became apparent that people who took care of these patients were potentially at risk themselves with exposure to blood and doing procedures, uh, that's when um, a lot of people pulled back. Not so much in the Bay Area as other parts of this country. We're very fortunate here. Um, But um, it it happened here. Um, And, in fact, I remember um, I I finished medical school. I I did a residency. I went to UCLA for two years to study infectious diseases. And then I came back, and I was hired in 1986 on the faculty here. And when I was hired here, um, there was an orthopedist. There was the, the actually the head of orthopedics at San Francisco General Hospital was a woman who absolutely refused to take care of or operate on people who had HIV. And yes, it was a woman. Yes, Lorraine Day. Um, is Lorraine here tonight? No, she's dead. Oh, good. I mean, not good. she said But. Uh, but um, and, and things got very polarized. Uh, there were surgeons who were at much greater risk, right, because they were more likely to cut themselves than, than we were. We were sticking needles in people and sticking ourselves, especially when we were inexperienced. When I was an, an intern in 1981, I took care of a, the first patient in the hospital I was training at who had pneumocystis. And uh, very, very sick in the ICU, uh, requiring dialysis and on a ventilator. And either every other day for like three or four weeks, I had to put uh, either a catheter in a deep vein in the neck or else um, a tube into his abdomen because we didn't have hemodialysis. It was a different kind of dialysis and covered um, with fluids. and, And I was an intern and I was clumsy and I made mistakes little mistakes, but I've sometimes cut myself, um, and, and that kind of fear grew once we understood, everybody understood that this was a virus. I mean, at that point, that was 1981, people had no idea what this was, but um, um, so there was, there was a lot of um, fear and pushback. Uh, there were um, a couple of health providers who um, one in particular? Not not here, but uh, I, I, I won't forget this. This was a, a very young cardiologist at Hopkins, who um, who was while he was in training, he had stuck himself a deep needle stick, um, and he had small children, and he died. And just before he died, he uh, wrote a long, very moving essay about his experience that was published in the New England Journal and it was, it was pretty devastating. Um, I don't know if that addresses the question. No,
1: no, no, no. just wanted to share um, experiences. So I want to come back just a little bit this way because I want to get back to the audience. Dion, um, we think of uh, HIV as being an MSM disease in San Francisco. What's the first memory of a woman that you took care of infected with HIV?
4: Um, so, pretty early on I, I think there's there were a couple of like myths around the storyline of like um, one of them was that initially it was a disease only of middle class white gay men, and then somewhere along the way, it became a disease of poor people and the same true as the myth around women and in fact, from the beginning, it was a disease that affected all strata of society, and so at San Francisco General, we had homeless people living with HIV from the very beginning, and um, probably, I think, the first woman patient that we had on the HIV unit, once it was open in 1983, was, you know, within six months, and um, it was a very... um, uh, I think it was very shocking for people. I mean, logically, by then we sort of knew why women could be at risk, and we knew that women had been infected in were cases in other places of the world. But then, when it occurred, it, it was very shocking. And I actually remember having a fight with Randy Schultz, who at the time was a, a reporter with the Chronicle. And as you can imagine, you know, we, as, as nurses and doctors, that we had to learn how to deal with the press which was not part of our training in nursing school or medical school, but it was an ongoing thing, Um, and, and learn how to use the press in a way that could be helpful. But oftentimes that also meant having to protect our patients and their privacy. And Randy Schultz was absolutely bound and determined that he was going to come in and interview this woman, and there was no way in the world that she was interested in being interviewed for the Chronicle. And no way that any one of us was going to let him anywhere near her. (laughs) And um, it was a very, I think, um, I think what ended up happening very early on, and I think a lot of the work that Monica's doing now was really happened, uh, the beginning of it happened in those days, is that that women started to find each other. And support groups were created for women living with HIV. And in fact, a few years later at Ward 86, we really came to the realization that uh, because the majority of our patients were men, uh, that the experience of women taking that elevator up to the sixth floor and sitting in the waiting room oftentimes as the only woman was uh, a very alienating experience. And so we created a women's clinic on Thursday morning. And all of our providers see most of of women patients, and the whole waiting room is only women. And we have breakfast, and we have support groups, and and it becomes a much more um, a less scary and alienating experience. Um, and to this day, and we're using some of that same approach for young young people, and um, and also for our Latino patients. It makes a difference when you walk in a waiting room if you see people who look like you or you don't. And it, it's a very scary thing. We, I have many of my new, new positive patients who tell me that it was scarier uh, taking the elevator for the first time for their first patient appointment and coming off of that elevator than when I told them that they were HIV positive in the emergency department. There's something about that first visit that's for this is a kid, this is for the rest of my life <laughs> this is what's happened to my life <laughs> and it's a scary experience so you have to create an environment that helps mitigate that alienation and that fear and, uh, and we're social animals and so the sense of community is really
1: important and the sense of solidarity is really important Great. Thank you very much. Um, I have so many more things I want to ask the panelists, but I also want the audience to have a chance to ask questions. What we're going to do now is I'm going to ask the panelists to go back to, the, to their seats. Dr. Hare, our clinic director at Ward 86, we take care of over 3,000 patients, is going to uh, give us a quick run-through on the HIV epidemiology in San Francisco, and then we'll wrap it up with questions from the audience.
0: All right. Thank you all for sticking it out. Um, I'm going to try to keep my remarks short, but I do want to give... Uh, my role this evening is to give you um, a bit of uh, perspective on what HIV is like uh, in San Francisco. So we've heard a bit about some of the, the global numbers, and I think, to me, um, you know, every epidemic is ultimately local. Um, and understanding what happens in San Francisco is really important to how we take care of the people in San Francisco. Um, and these numbers are... Um, uh, I, th- I think really are part of what makes San Francisco unique. but um, perspective wise uh, uh, there 's a new infection of HIV today every twelve seconds in the world, every nine minutes in the United States, and every day in San Francisco. So we are in two thousand and eleven um, these are i 'm sorry it doesn 't project all that well, but these are just some of the numbers. Um, so in San Francisco, uh, to date, there have been over 35,000 infections and over 19,000 people have died in San Francisco um, of HIV. Currently, we estimate somewhere between 15 and 18,000 people in our city live infected with HIV, and um, we're fortunate that the number of new cases has been going down in San Francisco due to a number of different factors, um, great testing strategies. Uh, linkage of patients to care, getting people on treatment and making their virus undetectable through treatment, which we now know is a very, very um, effective tool to prevent spread of HIV. So now we have about 392 new infections every year. And I just put uh, for comparison the numbers in California, the US, and the world. It's um, kind of um, almost incomprehensible to think of the origins that Monica outlined for us um, of those isolated transmissions from uh, monkeys to humans, and now thinking that over 72 million people have been infected um, in the last 100 years. Um, And some numbers that I think are really still quite staggering for people to understand, these are um, current statistics in San Francisco. If you look at the gay male population in San Francisco, one out of four men, gay men, in San Francisco is HIV positive. um, And that number for men who live in the Castro is greater than 50%. Um, The highest rates of new infections in our city is among transgendered uh, injection drug users who are uh, infected at a rate of 6% per year. Um, Just staggering numbers for the rates of new infections. Uh, This slide uh, is a graph from a a well-cited New England Journal article um, Really, that was titled AIDS in America, Forgotten but Not Gone, which looks, uh, the bars on the left are uh, prevalence rates, or the rates of uh, infections in populations in the United States, looking at certain isolated, uh, 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 both globally the United States at the far left and certain isolated populations, and comparing those to Africa. We all hear so much in the news about AIDS in Africa. And looking at the prevalence rates um, in some of these uh, populations, specific populations in the United States, how they compare to Africa, and how they compare, almost shockingly, um, equivalently, And I took the liberty, of, uh, as of others, of adding San Francisco's gay male um, epidemic on this graph. And we uh, still have prevalence rates of gay men that are really um, on par or surpass those in the generalized populations in sub-Saharan Africa. So to break it down just a bit more, so who are these 392 uh, new infections in San Francisco? Well, 88% are among men, 2% transgender, about 10% women. So in San Francisco, unlike other epidemics in the United States, our epidemic still is primarily among gay men, um, not exclusively. And it's really important to remember it's not exclusively among gay men. But these numbers would be very different if you looked in Oakland, if you looked in uh, Atlanta, if you looked in uh, New York. Um, Of those uh, infections, um, the large majority are among men who have sex with men. That's what MSM stands for. Um, Our epidemic is uh, still largely among white men, but disproportionate to our city's population, Latino and in particular blacks, are overrepresented in our city's epidemic. Um, And interestingly, you talk about the aging of the HIV epidemic, one of the new frontiers of HIV, um, and uh, about one in six new infections in San Francisco occurs in men over the age of 50. Um, We also will hear more about AIDS in children but it 's a, a testament to our prevention efforts in the city that there 's not been a case of HIV in a newborn since two thousand and five. So a tremendous early success in HIV was the prevention of transmission between mothers and children. Um, so where in our city does HIV reside? So um, these are uh, 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 it 's a picture of the neighborhoods in San Francisco. The darker purple areas are areas with higher concentrations of the epidemic. Um, and the lighter purple areas are lower concentrations. So probably not a surprise to people. Um, HIV centered around the Castro, along the Market Street corridor, down the Tenderloin, and south of Market areas. But also important um, areas of infections in the southeastern parts of the states, of, of the city. Sorry, of uh, Bayview and Hunters Point. Um, this is a slide that uh, Dion added in. Um, I'm just going hi- to orient you to this. this is, these are the San Francisco AIDS cases. Um, you can see the, uh, uh, the number of AIDS cases there in green. This is not HIV, but a clinical diagnosis of AIDS. Um, they're in green that have gone down with the advent of uh, effective treatment. The number of deaths in pink um, from AIDS also going down. But as a result, the number of uh, people living with HIV, the yellow bars, really have gone up. So we're seeing a lot more people, fortunately, living longer lives with HIV, but the prevalence in our city then actually stays high, even though the number of new infections can go down. So that was just a brief snapshot of what um, the epidemiology of HIV looks like in San Francisco. And I wanted to highlight the uniqueness, I think, of our city um, in, in that respect um, and how that shapes our city's response to, uh, to HIV. So that, we'll turn it back over to Dr. Havlier.
1: Thank you very much, Brad, for that nice um, overview. Um, I want to thank you for being a wonderful audience. It's been a really um, terrific evening. Please feel free to come to the front, and if not, we'll see you at the next course, which is on February 26th.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.